Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The FT. Welcome back to Banking Weekly with me, Megan Murphy. This week, we'll be discussing the news that Bob Diamond, Barclays' chief executive, has been awarded a near £7 million bonus. I think we will see... Bob Diamond's pay come down further. This is a kind of interim year, both for him and Stuart Gulliver. They're basically being paid for their investment banking roles last year that they still held and have kind of moderated their pay on that front. Rumours that HSBC may be looking again at relocating its headquarters out of the UK. The people that we've spoken to, both on the investor side and people close to the bank and indeed the bank officials, all really, really play down this prospect. And we're going to end the show with news that the EU bank stress tests are going to be made much more robust. Their current solution is to do a public capital stress test that is pretty rigorous and pushes on things like real estate prices and some sovereign shock. Joining me in the studio to discuss these topics today are Brooke Masters and Patrick Jenkins. So let's turn our attention to the first topic for today. We can tell the podcast listeners that uh, I have the Barclays remuneration report in my hands, and it reveals that Bob Diamond recently appointed chief executive Barclays, will be awarded a £6.5 million bonus this year. And it also a long-term inf- incentive plan known as an LTIP um, of 2.25. The outgoing, the former chief executive, John Varley, has sort of taken a little bit of a surprise £2.75 million bonus this year, which I think is a little bit higher than people had expected, and that includes £550,000 cash. Now, we had understood that Mr. Diamond, whose lavish pay packages as the former head of Barclays Capital, Barclays Investment Banking Unit, would be taking home closer to $10 million this year. And so I was going to say to Patrick, do you think this shows that there was a little bit of a rethink, perhaps, given what some of the other UK bank peers had been awarded? That would be the obvious interpretation, I suppose, that especially in the light of news a week or so ago that Stuart Gulliver, the new chief executive of HSBC, who'd also moved up from uh, being head of the investment bank there, uh, that he was actually going to take a bonus of uh, just over £5 million, which is also less than he'd been expected to take, that that really set the bar lower. And therefore, there wasn't much other choice for Bob Diamond other than to, to lower his own figure, uh, especially considering the other EU part, government-owned, Lloyds and RBS, um, they were rewarding far smaller bonuses of you know one to £2 million. So that's the kind of obvious interpretation. Now, you could take a more scheming interpretation, I suppose, and suggest that the original figure that was put out there by people close to the bank of around 9 to £10 million was perhaps deliberately floated ahead of the the Project Merlin, this peace deal between the banks and the government, to suggest that, you know, now he's only going to take um, six point something million, uh, which is far lower than he was otherwise going to take. Um, so, hey, presto, he's taking note of the new environment of, um, you know, showing restraint. There's definitely perhaps something to that. Now, of course, this morning, people close to the bank were keen to emphasize that this is less than the bonuses taken home by Jamie Dimon, who received $17 million for 2010, and Lloyd Blankfein, the head of Goldman Sachs, who took home about $13 million again uh, for 2010. And, and they were sort of keen to emphasize that 
uh, Stuart Gulliver was not a competitor of Bob's and that HSBC is not a competitor of Barclays, which uh, I'm sure HSBC would be keen to hear. But I think it was going to be very difficult for them to justify in the UK where public and political attention to this issue remains so high to have um, a nine figure, which is nearly double what Stuart Gulliver received. And as you made the point, um, very similar in that he was head of their global banking and markets division and come up to be CEO. And it was a very similar situation to Bob. So I think that's a little bit of what we're seeing. The problem comes, though, if you start benchmarking yourself against global peers like JP Morgan and Goldman Sachs, that you also have to start benchmarking your profitability uh, and your share price performance. And Barclays doesn't really stand up well on either of those measures. Um, you know, its its recent annual uh, results showed a uh, return on equity of barely 7%. That's way below the U.S. banks. Um, and also it's the shares are trading um, still below their book value, um, which, again, is different from a lot of the best uh, U.S. banks. So I think, you know, it's, it's very difficult to, to justify on those pure metrics. Um, I think the, the, the only other point to mention is that I think we will see Bob Diamond's pay come down further. This is a kind of interim year, both for him and Stuart Gulliver. They're basically being paid for their investment banking roles last year that they still held and have kind of moderated their pay on that front. When they become actually chief executive, then it's going to be a much lower number. Think about in the U.S., at least up until the oil shock connected to Libya, the U.S. economy is recovering. Unemployment dipped below 9% for the first time in a long time. So the, the public mood is quite different there as well. Well, let's talk a little bit more about, we mentioned HSBC reports this weekend of a long sort of simmering issue about their headquarters. And this also came in the wake of very surprising in-depth interview given by Mervyn King to the Sunday Telegraph, where he indicated that he didn't believe that reforms of the sector had gone far enough and that he's looking to the Independent Commission on Banking to sort of impose broader structural reforms as well. How does this all fit in in terms of the UK landscape, which, as we've discussed before in the podcast, does seem to be moving in a slightly different direction than other jurisdictions and causing severe competitive issues for several of the main players? Well, the story around HSBC obviously plays into that broader topic, but it's a kind of uh, it's it's also a distinct one for the bank, which um, has has always or has long had two main bases in the UK and in Hong Kong in terms of their domestic markets, as they like to refer to them. So it's it's long had also a process whereby every three years it reviews whether it should be headquartered where it currently is headquartered, i.e. in London, uh, and whether it makes sense to, to think about moving somewhere else. 2011 is one of those years, and it is going to be, well, as indeed started to talk to investors about you know what they think on this. The Sunday Telegraph story that you mentioned um Interesting that several investors cited in that article as saying that they'd been told by the bank that you know they they were thinking that uh, Hong Kong was now a much better better place to be. The people that we've spoken to, both on the investor side and people close to the bank, and indeed the bank officials, all really really play down this prospect. I think the mechanics of actually changing are huge and even though Stuart Gulliver is a new chief executive and will be bringing a new broom in. I suspect it might be, you know, one huge change too far to do this in the first few months of starting a new job. It's also not at all clear that the Hong Kong regulators would be very excited about having HSBC move everything there. They are already known to be tougher than the UK regulators on things like capital, which is not a big problem for HSBC. But I, I think on the trading side in particular, they're not dying to have lots of new trading risk in Hong Kong, which obviously does not have the economy to support it unless mainland China is pulled in. 
And Mervyn's interview, surprising, I thought, just in some of the statements he made and sort of how, in particular, the statements he made comparing sort of banks' relationship with their customers to industrial ties with their customers and sort of indicating that this relationship of trust between banks and the public has been lost. Um, the banks haven't done enough to rebuild it. He was quite sharp-tongued on that particular point. On the broader issues relating to, you know, the structure of banks and whether they should be broken up along the lines of the U.S. Glass-Steagall legislation that came in after the Wall Street crash. You know, he said all of that before. The fact that he's out there saying it again now is significant, I think. It's clearly him wanting to be a continued part of the debate. Indeed, he's central to the whole debate. He's going to take over regulation of the banks from the FSA in the, in the coming year or two. Uh, and this is going to be, you know, central to the the work he's going to have to do. But the, the fact is that he does seem to be rather isolated in that view. The other interesting thing, I suppose, is that he's wanting to be part of the, the, the debate that is framed at the moment by the Banking Commission. This is the body that's set up by the government to look at the structure of banks going forward. Um, and it does seem that even though we've got some strong views on that commission, uh, led by Sir John Vickers, the direction in which they're going is not towards the full-scale Glass-Steagall-style breakup, but rather towards subsidiarization, so-called, whereby you'd have to capitalise individual elements of a bank separately, perhaps. So I think, you know, he's at one extreme of the debate when it seems to be moving towards consensus in the middle somewhere. Definitely um, one to watch. Okay, well, let's move on to the final topic of the day, the new EU stress tests and the news that the regulators are planning to introduce a category near fail. Brooke, you broke this story today. Basically, a reflection of the new chairman of the European Banking Authority, which is taking over stress tests. It was newly created in January. It's trying to make these stress tests less of a joke than last year's stress tests. Last year, as we all remember, just a few months after a bunch of Irish banks passed the stress test with flying colors, they then collapsed. In recognition that something was not quite right with that last set, he has said that he would like to create a category for banks that make it through the stress test. In other words, they have enough capital to survive the various scenarios the EBA will throw at them, but are kind of close, borderline, maybe within 1% or 2% of their required tier 1 capital ratio that there would then be pressure from the regulators on these banks to actually do something. Perhaps they would be constrained in their ability to pay dividends. They would be encouraged very strongly to raise capital either through some sort of new cocoa or through equity. And the, the hope is that these banks in the middle will not just be allowed to say, oh, we're fine, and instead have to prepare in case the shock scenario that the EBA used turns out not to be tough enough. It, they're in a tough time right now because, of course, the oil world is a mess. And so devising an adverse economic shock that is both realistic but also takes into really scary things into account is very difficult for them. So I think they're particularly concerned that they will miss something. Put aside the fact that they may introduce this near fail, so you will capture those ones that are, you know, within the 1% and 2%. There's still this lingering issue and a lot of fears and a lot of people I still talk to that the stress test still just will not be tough enough. You mentioned the concern about oil and pricing and shock over that you know, still concerned that they won't take into enough sovereign debt issues and and that that actually won't be as rigorous enough either. What are you getting the feeling from people? And I mean, aren't we still at some political wrangling over? The problem is a really serious, hard-nosed stress test is not one you want to conduct in public because, frankly, the banks will fail and you don't want to tell people publicly, by the way, we think the banks are going to fail if things are bad. So they have to walk this really fine line between saying, you know, we're doing meaningful tests and saying basically the sector is a complete disaster. 
their current solution, which may change over the next few months as they design them, is to do a public capital stress test that is pretty rigorous and pushes on things like real estate prices and some sovereign shock, although I don't think they can acknowledge that a, a EU sovereign country will not pay its bonds. The backside will be is they will do a, a non-public liquidity test. And liquidity is what brought down the Irish banks, to be fair. And that one is the one that most banks are most vulnerable on. And they'll do that one secretly. They won't reveal the results, but they will, one hopes, actually force the banks to do something about it. And give us, a, again, a reminder of what the timetable is for all this. They put out a formal timetable last week, and basically what they said is later this month they will make public their scenarios, what, the, what they're going to put the banks through. Then sometime in April they will make public sort of how they're going to measure things and the assumptions they use, and the actual results should get made public in June. And that's a little bit of a slippage from where they were hoping for. But I think it's actually probably a good sign. It means they're listening to the market and trying to fix the tests. Final question. It would be right to expect that we shouldn't expect too much of this to leak in advance because they don't want banks to sort of start getting an early, you know, sort of run up to what they're going to have to go through. I think that's their goal. So far, the EBA has proved a little bit leaky, so it's a little bit hard to tell. But I think their goal is not to let the banks game the system by, you know, like loading up on the right assets right ahead of the tests. Well, thank you very much for that, Brooke. Fascinating. Um, That's all we have time for today. All that's left is to thank Brooke and Patrick in the studio and to thank you, the audience, for listening. Banking Weekly is produced by LJ Filatroni. And until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor. What's a mistake they made that changed their approach? And how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.